0: hello london we are ready for your vote hello i'm stephen perkins and welcome back to Douze the eurovision obsessed podcast from the team who bring you Benchwatch. now it may be the eurovision off season but i am still here every fortnight to take a dive into some interesting subjects that have cropped up in the show's nearly 70 year history Before we get started, a little bit of housekeeping as ever. If you like the show, please do hit subscribe on your podcast platform. That is more relevant this week than it usually is, and I will get to why in a minute. And if you particularly liked it, maybe leave us a lovely review as well. And we are still posting updates on Twitter. I'm not going to call it by its new name, and you can't make me. At binge watch underscore pod. Now at the end of the last episode I promised that this time I was going to be looking at the changing rules of Eurovision throughout history, and I will still be doing that, but I have to admit I didn't realise quite what a mammoth task it was going to be, so with that in mind i decided to make this a two-parter. In this episode we'll be looking at the years from the start of the competition in 1956 up to my fairly arbitrary cut-off point of 1989. Let's just say it makes sense to break things off when Taylor Swift was born, it's as good a reason as any. And then in a fortnight's time I will be back to look at the rules changes from 1990 up to the present day. Most of us probably know the current rules of Eurovision, things like the song must be original and no more than three minutes in length, the lead vocals have to be live, no more than six performers can be on the stage, you cannot vote for your own country, all that sort of thing. But it's taken us years of honing to get to that stage, including a few fairly bizarre rules that were eventually thrown out of the window. Now, in the last episode, I took a look at, or rather a listen to, the very first Eurovision Song Contest, and I covered the initial rules in that one. But, in case you don't remember, or you didn't listen to that one, or if you're like me, and occasionally you just zone out entirely while listening to a podcast and miss entire chunks of it because you're too busy thinking about donuts or EastEnders or whatever, it makes sense to start here with a quick recap. At the very first Eurovision in 1956, the rules were very different to what we have now. Every country was obliged to hold a national final to select their entries, and they submitted two songs, which could be performed by the same artist or different artists, but could only be sung by a solo performer either way. There was no specific age limit, and there was a general understanding that the songs should be no longer than three and a half minutes. The participating countries would take it in turns to host the contest each year, and all music was performed by a live orchestra. The biggest difference between then and now, however, was that the voting was carried out entirely in secret. Each country had two jurors, who gave each song a score out of ten, and were allowed to vote for their own country. But the results of that one were not revealed, and only the winner, Lise Assia of Switzerland, with her second song, Refrain, was announced. Naturally, when it came to staging the contest for the second time, the EBU decided to refine the format a little bit, having had a chance to see what worked and what didn't. So, in 1957, when the contest was held in Frankfurt, West Germany, the rules were changed so that each country would submit one song only. But the major change that year was the total overhaul of the voting system. The number of jurors per country was raised from 2 to 10, and each juror could give a single point to their favourite song, but they were no longer allowed to vote for themselves. Now, in theory, this meant that a unanimous jury could award all 10 points to a single entry, but in the ten non-consecutive years that this system was in use that never actually happened. The closest we came was Denmark giving nine points to France in 1958 and Belgium giving nine points to Ireland in 1970, with both songs ultimately winning the contest. The votes were now public too, with the now customary scoreboard becoming a part of the proceedings for the first time you hopefully noticed that I mentioned the rule in 1956 was for each song to be no longer than 3 minutes 30. And for the first two years, this rule was operated on a sort of honour system where the participants were trusted to play nicely. Unfortunately, several countries in 1957 blatantly flouted the rules, most egregiously Italy, whose entry, Corre della mia chitarra by Nunzio Gallo, was 5 minutes and 9 seconds long. So, from 1958, the rules regarding length were much more rigidly enforced. But this is where I admit the detail escapes me ever so slightly. Believe it or not, I do try to fact check everything I say on this podcast, but there seem to be conflicting reports about whether the strict three-minute rule came in from 1958 straight away, or whether they were initially just much more rigid about sticking to the original three and a half minutes. Either way, the general wisdom appears to be that by 1960, the three-minute rule was in place and remains there to this day. So this means that Italy's entry from 1957 is the longest entry in European history and, barring a dramatic rule change in the future, is unlikely to ever be beaten. And if you're wondering who holds the record for the shortest song in Eurovision, well this record was set in 1957 also by the United Kingdom's first ever entry, All by Patricia Bredin, which clocked in at 1 minute 53 seconds, and that record stood until 2015 when it was bested by, and please forgive me for my pronunciation here, Finland's Pereti Kurikan Nimi Pervet with Einamun at a mere 1 minute 27. The other noteworthy thing about 1958 is that as you'll remember, the original plan was for each country to take turns hosting, but After the BBC, who were the originally intended host broadcaster for the 1958 contest, pulled out not just of hosting, but of the competition entirely, and several other broadcasters declined to take their place, the Netherlands, who won in 1957, stepped up to host, and from then on, the tradition of the previous year's winner hosting the following year was established. Although this isn't strictly a rule, it's more of an invitation, and broadcasters do have the right to decline if their circumstances mean that it's very difficult for them to host, as indeed the Netherlands did, after they won again in 1959, and didn't want to host the contest again so quickly. So in 1960, we had a rural reversal of 1958 and the BBC took over from them. There was just a small change in 1959, but a fairly big one to modern viewers. Music industry professionals were banned from taking part in the juries. Obviously that's entirely the opposite of the way the rules work now, but I can't find exactly when this rule was lifted. My best guess is that it remained in place until the juries were phased out from 1998 onwards, and the rule that jury members had to be music experts only came around when juries were reintroduced for the 2009 final, given that the whole point of juries being involved was apparently to, you know, save the idiot public from themselves or something. Again, there were no major alterations for the process in 1960, but one that is quite interesting from a modern perspective. This was the first year that jurors were allowed to listen to the final rehearsal performance from each country, to give themselves more time to properly consider their votes. The next big change came in 1962, when the voting system was adjusted. This time it was made so that countries could only give out points to three entries. Three points to their favourite song, two points to the runner-up, and one point to the second runner-up. As you can imagine, this resulted in quite a few low-scoring entries that year, including a four-way tie for last place between Belgium, Spain, Austria, and the Netherlands, all of whom scored zero points. That system wasn't in place for long because in 1963 the voting procedure was changed again. The number of people on the jury was raised from 10 to 20, and points were awarded for their five favourite songs, with the overall favourite song getting five points and the song in fifth position getting one point. Things changed yet again in 1964, as the number of jurors went back down to 10, with each getting to vote individually for their favourite song. The song with the highest number of juror votes would score 5 points, the runner-up would get 3, and the song in third place gets just 1 point. Now this was an interesting system because it did allow for a degree of variation in the scoring. A fully unanimous jury could give all 10 points to one song, but again that never actually happened in the three years that this system was being used. But there was an occasion in 1965 when Belgium jurors only gave points to the United Kingdom and Italy, so the UK got their six points and Italy three points. There was another rule change in 1966 but for a change it didn't involve the voting system, instead it applied to the songs. Much like with the original rule about song length, there had been an unwritten understanding that every nation would enter a song in one of their native languages, until Sweden decided to see what would happen if they entered a song in English in 1965 with Ingvar Vixell's Absent Friend. As a result, from 1966 onwards, an official rule was in place declaring that songs could only be performed in a native language of the competing country. By 1967 we were back to playing around with the voting system again, but this time the system reverted to the one that had been used between 1957 and 1961. And just in case you've lost track, and I wouldn't blame you if you had, that was the one where each jury could allocate a total of 10 points, one point for each juror's favourite song in any combination. This system seemed to work pretty well, until the wheels well and truly came off in 1969, when we ended up with a four-way tie for first place between the United Kingdom, Spain, France and the Netherlands, and no official rule in place to resolve a tie. So all four countries were declared the winner. Naturally this was an outcome that pleased pretty much nobody, so from 1970 onwards a tie-breaking system was implemented for deciding the winner only. In the event of a tie, the top however many artists would perform again in a sing-off and a show of hands from the jurors would determine the winner. Also, it's not a rule exactly, but it's worth noting that the 1970 contest featured another first example of something that we take for granted now, the postcard films being used to introduce the songs. Now, this was believed to be due to a large number of countries boycotting the competition that year, and host broadcaster NOS of the Netherlands needing to fill the runtime with something, but the postcards were popular enough among viewers that they became a regular feature in subsequent years. Now, I learned a few things while researching for this episode, and the uh, change to the voting system in 1971 is perhaps the most bizarre in all of Eurovision history, and an idea that I can only assume was determined by a bunch of extremely drunk executives one night. Every country now had only two jurors, one of whom had to be over 25, the other under 25, and a minimum of a 10-year age gap between them. Each juror would give every single song a score of between 1 and 5 points. Now, on the bright side, this created a situation where it was entirely impossible to score zero points. With 18 countries taking part, the lowest score any country could receive was 34. The problem, however, and you may have already spotted it, was that with the juries having absolutely no obligation to award top points if they didn't feel like it, it was possible to attempt to gain the system simply by lowballing all of your competitors. Whether deliberately or entirely circumstantially, Luxembourg tried this in 1971, giving the minimum two points to 13 out of the 17 countries that they were scoring. Not that it worked in their favour, they Still finished 13th overall that year. Incredibly, this absolutely broken system nonetheless remained in place for two more years. There were some slightly more well-received changes in 1971 though. This was the first year where each country had to submit a video preview of their entry for distribution across the EBU network, which each country had to air in at least two programs prior to the main contest. And this was also the year where the number of performers permitted on stage was raised to its current number of six people. When we got to 1973, a more progressive rule was brought in. The native language rule was relaxed again, and performers were allowed to use backing tracks for the first time. But bizarrely, there was a rule that any instrument featured in the backing track had to be seen physically on stage. Come 1974, the voting system reverted once again to the format used from 1957 to 61 and from 1967 to 70, where a 10-person jury gets to give out a total of 10 points, with each juror voting once for their favourite song. There was yet another voting overhaul in 1975, and this one brought us fairly close to the current system. A jury of at least 11 people, at least half of whom had to be under 26, would give each song a score from 1 to 5 points. After that, a jury secretary would tally up all of those scores and allocate points to the top 10 on their collective scoreboard. The overall favourite song would get 12 points, which is the first time that became the maximum score. The second place song would get 10 points, and the songs from 3rd to 10th place would run down from 8 points to 1. The main reason that this isn't quite the system we have now is that back then the scores were announced in the order that the artist in question performed, rather than in the ascending order that we've become used to. Interestingly, one of the reasons behind this overall change to the voting was that the EBU felt that with an increasingly large field of countries taking part, it seemed impossible that any country could fail to score at least a single point using this system, until Norway proved them wrong in 1978 with Jan Tigen's now infamous performance of Meal et à but the good news is that that is the last of the major changes to the voting system for the next 21 years. But there was a little financial rule brought in in 1976, where each country taking part had to contribute towards the cost of staging the contest. Now this was at least partly a result of Sweden declining to enter that year, because the broadcaster SR felt that they couldn't afford to host if they won again. That takes us to 1977, when the native language rule was reintroduced, but with special exceptions granted to Germany and Belgium, who had already held their song sections that year, and pick songs performed in English by the time the rule change was announced, so they were allowed to proceed as planned for that year only. Interestingly, Sweden's Björn Skiffs planned to protest this rule or change in 1978 and was going to sing his song Did blia aletid vera in English and risked his qualification, but changed his mind on the night. He did sing the beginning of the song in nonsense words, and depending on which version of the story you believe, this was either a very subtle protest because only Swedish-speaking people would notice, or a result of his last-minute change of heart leading to him forgetting the actual correct Swedish lyrics. Anyway, I'm digressing again, and this podcast is long enough already, but the end is in sight. In 1980, the organisers realised it would make much more sense to change the order the results were read out in and decided to go from ascending order from 1 point to 12 instead. Things were then fairly static until 1988, when growing interest in the contest led the EBU to place a limit on the number of countries who could compete in any one year, that limit being 22. But this did pose a problem, not only for countries looking to make their Eurovision debut, but also for countries who had previously participated in Eurovision before later withdrawing and who were thinking about coming back. Also that year, the minimum number of jurors was raised to 16. 1988 also brought us another tiebreak panic when Céline Dion, representing Switzerland, beat the UK's Scott Fitzgerald by a single point. So, in 1989, the existing tiebreak rule was revised to ditch the idea of a sing off. From this point onwards, in the event of a tie for first place, the scores would be checked, and the country that received the higher number of maximum 12 points would be the winner. If this didn't break the tie, they would check the number of 10 points and so on down the line until the tie was broken. And if they got all the way down to one and still hadn't managed to break the tie, then and only then would the countries involved be declared joint winners. And it's worth noting too that this only applied to the winner. Ties were still allowed in all other positions on the table. Phew! That brings us up to 1990, which is where we're going to stop for today. Thank you so much for listening, and I would love it if you would come back for the second part of this podcast, when we'll be looking at the period from 1990 to 2023, as the increasing number of countries wanting to take part causes a whole new set of problems. Until then, good night, Europe, and good morning, Australia.